Strokeside Designs is a New York-based fine jewelry company focused on water sports. This is the best jewelry I have found through many years of searching. I love my Dragon Boat Paddle Heart earrings and my pendant. The jewelers at Strokeside Designs have worked for famous jewelry houses such as Tiffany & Company and Cartier. All of the pieces are hand-finished from fine materials. Express your passion for kayaking, canoeing, and dragon boating. Visit PaddleJewelry.com and get free shipping with the code PINK. That is PaddleJewelry.com and enter the code PINK. Are you a dragon boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Water Sports makes high-performance, lightweight, carbon fiber dragon boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the dragon boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape, and more. Visit their website at hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK. Thanks for listening. On this episode, Andrea Stein Goldsworthy from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, joined us on the podcast to share her breast cancer story. Andrea is a 14-year breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed at the age of 32 with stage 2B invasive ductal carcinoma. She talks about finding the lump in her breast through a self-breast exam, her treatments, having an unsupportive husband, going through a divorce, and finding new love. She also talks about the amazing blessing with her son, Alex. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And don't forget that my book, Behind the Pink Ribbon, where I share my personal story with breast cancer, is available on Amazon and Amazon Kindle. Pick up your copy today. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Andrea Stein Goldsworthy. She is a 14-year breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma at the age of 32. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Andrea. Thanks for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. This is such an honor. Absolutely. And I just want to kind of share with our listeners uh, how we met because you actually live in New Hampshire and I am in Phoenix, previously in Pittsburgh, but we actually met through the SCAR Project with David J. Um, you were a model and then I was also a model for David J too. So that's kind of the connection that we have. Um, but before we, you know, we can certainly talk about that today if you'd like, but before we actually talk about anything um like that, I want to talk about your diagnosis. So it's been 14 years, um, and you were diagnosed at the age of 32. Um, tell me a little bit about how that all happened for you. I mean, 32 isn't necessarily the age of when people would be having a mammogram. So tell me a little bit about that part of the story. Okay, thank you. So strangely enough, um, I always had a strange inkling that I was going to have breast cancer someday. My my grandmother died of uh, breast and ovarian cancer when I was seven, back in 1980. 
And it was just, I don't know, it was just always kind of looming over me. And, but I thought, you know, I'd get it much later in life, you know, older than she was. She was in her 50s when she was first diagnosed. That's still pretty Um, young. It is. Yeah. It is. And unfortunately, you know, back in the late 70s, you know, early 80s, they didn't have all the protocol that we have now for prevention and awareness. And so, you know, it was kind of always in my head, you know, and my, my mother's side of the family has a very strong history of cancer. I mean, it's just, it's just the genes are really bad. (laughs) So, um, uh, the summer of 2005, um, a friend of mine, her name is Deb, she was doing a photo shoot, um, and I was a stand-in model for her, and it was for, like, a, a breast can- a new breast cancer kind of awareness foundation or, you know, selling product with the pink ribbon, um, and she gave me a hang tag for the shower, and, you know, it talked about how to do an exam in the shower, and I was like, oh, I never really thought of that. You know, they didn't really, you know, you know, tell you that at the doctor's office. They're just like, you know, make sure at the same time every month you you fill up your boobs. So, well, and, you know, I'm going to kind of pause you there because I think you make a really great point in terms of, you know, for most of us, many of us, um, we start going to the gynecologist. I mean, I was. I was probably a little bit older than most of my classmates, but I think I started going when I was like 16 or 17 when I got my period. Um, But at that point in time, even then, doctors weren't talking about the importance of doing self-breast exams, which I think they really should be doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I hope that's changed now. I don't have children, so I have no idea, but I really hope that that's something that is happening um, because we're, we're missing a large population of women. Um, it's possible that, that teenagers get breast cancer too. So they should be feeling themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, so when I did the exam, I immediately felt a lump in my breast underneath. Um, and it felt like in between, like, I'd say like a marble and well, it was definitely bigger than a pea. I mean, it was not small. And then I got out of the shower and, you know, immediately and I'm like, oh my God, what is, you know, I'm thinking the worst. So I get out of the shower and then, you know, it shows you on the hang tag, you know, how to like put your hands behind your back and see if there's any dimpling. And yes, there was dimpling. And I was like, oh, everything on the hang tag. I was like, check mark, check mark, check mark. So I called my gynecologist and I said, I felt a lump, you know, in the shower yesterday. And, you know, I really would like to come in. So and this is the same gynecologist that told me that she was going to start me on mammograms at 35 because of my family history. Now, if, oh, I wow. had wa- if I had waited, I don't know, those three years may or may not have made a difference. I mean, they told me it probably took 10 years to, to get to that size. So maybe I wasn't in the worst of the worst, but it had already spread to my lymph nodes. Right. So Well, I feel you. like, and I was told the same thing, like, oh, you know, the cancer has probably been in your body, which is not comforting at all, by the no. way, when, you know, they're like, oh, for a tumor that is, you know, I think it was like one centimeter, it would take between like eight and 10 years for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so it's been working around in my body for that long and like nobody caught it. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, and and the reality is, is that 
you know, I think about, okay, so it takes 10 years to get to about a centimeter or so in terms of a, a tumor or a lump or a mass. And yet when it pops up for young women, it seems to be very aggressive. Like mine grew really fast. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that was, you know, kind of the case for you, but I, I would think that, you know, if you had waited until you were 35, it, it might've been a big difference. I think so. I mean, I had just seen her in May for a checkup. I mean, and did and she, she do an exam? She did a breast she exam. Did an exam, and that's why I'm like, you didn't feel anything. Like, you know, I feel like a long, a lot of time, in instances when they're like doing the, the, the checkup, they're doing it so fast. You know, I just they're just like palpitating and they're you know checking around, checking around. But I'm just like, how did she not feel that then? Like, it was definitely big enough to feel like. But maybe, I don't know, like, my husband didn't feel it, and, you know, he had felt me up a lot since May, so <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm like, anyway. Yeah. So, she so, sent me, she sent, she sent me to um, a cancer center just north of Boston. I grew up in, um, just north of Boston myself, um, right on the end of the orange line, if anybody's listening from Boston. <laughs> Oak Grove. Yeah. Um, so it was on Halloween <laughs> that I had a man, my first mammogram, it was in the morning. Then they decided to do an ultrasound and then they sent me out for lunch and they said, come back. Um, we need to talk to you. you oh, so they were able to get the ultrasound in that same day. That's nice. Yes, I know. Because this, this cancer center had like, you know, set, was set up to do, you know, a lot of different types of tests. So I came back from lunch and they said, we need, we need to do a biopsy because we not only found the lump that you feel, but we found quote unquote friends. Hmm. And I was like looking at the nurse, like, oh, what? And then, you know, they said that they also wanted to biopsy under my armpit. Now, you know, I'm always thinking like lymph nodes, they're always checking, you know, under your jaw and kind of like where your clavicle is. And right. I didn't stop to think that like my lymph nodes could be under my armpit. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't even, I never even heard the word axillary before. <laughs> so I was just like, okay. And all of a sudden I'm like, it was just like the craziest day. And all of a sudden I'm laying on a table and they're shoving a big needle into my breast and I'm like trying not to scream. I'm just like, oh, you know, so I went home and I was sore and, you know. So wait, you were, were you there by yourself? You didn't have anybody with you? I was there by myself because I thought it was going to be an in and out mammogram. And, you know, I kind of had a feeling it might have just been a, a fluid filled cyst because I had one taken out when I was 16 from my jaw area and one like right below my eyebrow when I was about eight years old. So I'm thinking, you know, I do feel a lump, but, you know, even though I was like, ah, oh, it's got to be cancer, I was also thinking, ah, oh, it's probably just a cyst. So I really was, you know, not planning on being there all day. Um, right. Luckily, at the time, my friend, my one of my best friends, um, Vicky, was working at the same facility, and she met me for lunch. Um, so we got to talk about, you know, possibilities and you know, she's like, do you want me to come back with you? I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I, you know, I was kind of in denial and I'm just like, no, I can handle it. I can handle it. You know, that was back then. <laughs> that was then. This is now. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, they said that they would call me with the results. Um, How long did it take for them before they actually called? Four days. Four days. Four days. They called me on a Friday at five o'clock. Just as as I was leaving work, I was working at the Museum of Science at the time. Luckily, my, my boss, Carl, was there. And I walked into his office. Um, he had experienced cancer also. And I looked at him and tears started forming in my eyes. And I said, I just got the call. It's not good. And I just pretty much collapsed in his office and I'm sobbing. And he's just looking at me and he's like, here's two things I want to tell you. You don't know what's going on yet. And two, I, I really urge you to go get a second opinion. Mm. So I did. Um, I went. Well, so let me, I'm going to back up for just a moment because, um, you know, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, getting a phone call on a Friday at five o'clock, you're leaving work. You don't, one, they don't know where you are. Um, Two, they don't know who you're with. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, like, like, were you, did you have any feelings around that? Like, I, I think that. Sometimes there, like, I feel like there has to be a better job of asking people, you know, are you with somebody right now? Do you have anybody that can support you right now? Or at least giving the option, would you like to come in to the office to get your results or would you like to hear your results now? I agree with you. Like, I, I what if it, you had been driving? Is, you know. Exactly. Oh, I would have been off the road. And that's my, that is my concern. Um, you know, and there are some people who are totally fine with being able to hear this information over the phone and that is okay. I think that there just has to be a better way of doing this where, you know, if there's something that's starting to suggest that maybe this is cancer, I think one of the questions should be, do you want to come into the office or is it okay if we call you on the phone? I completely agree. I mean, the whole office it was, you know, gone for the weekend and I was really lucky that my boss was still there and it was Absolutely. kind of ironic there. So thank you, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Carl. Thank you. Um, so you went and you did get, um, so when they called and they told you, they just told you, oh, you have breast cancer. Like they didn't give you any kind of additional information at that point in time. No, he just um, said that he wanted me to come in on Monday okay. and I had to call my husband to come pick me up because I couldn't sure. drive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's my point. <laughs> um, I was shaking and I was like, yeah. You know, you know, and you know, when I picked up the phone, I was just like, I was ready for him to say that it was positive. But when right. he actually said it, that's when it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. It's, there's nothing like hearing the words that you have cancer. Nothing. No matter no. how many, no matter how many times you've had the conversation in your head that I know this is coming and I know that's what mm-hmm. it is. It, for me, it didn't change either. Like I thought I was prepared. And then the day that it happened, I just started screaming and yeah. tucked my head between my legs um, because I thought I was going to pass out. So I yeah. hear you. Um, so you went for the second opinion. So tell me a little bit about that. I went to Dana-Farber in Boston. Um, at the time, my husband's aunt worked at Children's I'm not sure if she still does because we're divorced now. Um, that's another story. <laughs> but um, she helped get me in to see Dr. Eric Weiner, who was at the time the head of breast oncology. Um, and he had a fellow with him, Erica Mayer, who is now my oncologist. Um, has been for the last <laughs> 13 or so years. 
Um, and I just, I liked their approach better. They took, I mean, a lot of time with me and, you know, Dr. Weiner never looked at his watch. He just looked at me and, you know, and they had a different protocol plan set up for me than Winchester Hospital did. Um, the other place wanted to do chemo first, then surgery, then radiation, um, and the chemo only because I had lymph node involvement. But I just felt like, well, you know, uh, do I have a choice in that? Do I it really? Do I have to just like start get you know chemo? And when I went to Dana Farber, you know, they they kind of gave me the chemo as a choice. You know, they said they really highly recommended it because of my lymph node involvement. But you know, they were going to take out the the nodes. They were going to take out um, you know the cancer. And of course, they started giving me options on what kind of surgery and all that kind of stuff. But I just felt like I had a totally different experience. And I was like, you know, I live you know, eight miles north of Boston, why not be at the best place in Boston or one sure. of the best places in Boston? Well, you know? and it sounds like you kind of had, well, from what I'm interpreting is you felt like you had more of a decision, more of a level of involvement in terms of the discussion and what that course of treatment would look like. Whereas the first one, it was kind of just prescribed. Yes. And, you know, the bedside manner wasn't great on the first one. I just didn't feel that like, a, like I didn't feel comfortable. I just didn't feel a connection. I didn't feel like I was going to be, you know, cared for in the same way that, you know, when I got to Dana Fiber, I was just like, all right, these are my people. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's important. Like you have to really trust your gut. I mean, this is, this is big stuff, right? Like it's not, it, this isn't anything that, that is, you know, to be taken lightly. And, you know, if something in your gut doesn't feel good, you've got to listen to that. Um, so I'm glad that you sought out the second opinion because, you know, many people are not okay with getting a second opinion because they don't want to, you know, offend the doctors or, you know, they feel like, you know, all doctors are created equal and that's not mm -hmm. the case. Um, you know, Absolutely. and so, yeah, you've really have to go with your gut. So, um, tell me a little bit about, so what was your treatment then? So did you do the surgery first? I did. Um, they gave me an option of a full mastectomy, um, or I could do, uh, what they called back then, like a wide excision. Um, so they would take out the, uh, the bottom of my breast, like underneath the areola and down. So they would take out that whole section. Um, and they didn't at the time, or I didn't hear it, you know, because, you know, you're being dumped with all this information that they could do an expander right away if I did the mastectomy. I didn't, I don't feel like I remember that at all. So I just couldn't imagine waking up without a breast. I mean, I had perky little cute A-cup boobs and, you know, I was just like, I, I loved them, you know. Yeah. I was just like, I don't, I don't know. I just, it was just a lot. You know, I was just like, I'm 32 and I, I don't know. I just, you know, I didn't know anyone else that had gone through this at the time. And I didn't know what, you know, flat would be like, or, you know, that I should, if I was going to go flat, maybe I should do a bilateral and then reconstruction or, you know, I, I don't know. I felt like it's a lot It back it, in 2005. I just, I don't know. It just, I may not have heard what they that they offered that we didn't really talk about reconstruction at the time. Um, and I just decided to go with the, um, uh, wide excision. Um, 
because that just seemed like less of a hack job to me. I don't okay. know. It like yeah. I just had this vision of them chopping off my boob and I don't know. I was just having nightmares about it. Right. Um, yeah. And, and again, it's, it's all about choices. Like you just have to make the is. choice that, you know, based on the information that you have. Um, so then, so you had that removed and then like, did they take a large portion of it? I mean, I can't. They like, did. Okay. And, I mean, for, because I had an A, you know, I was an A cup. So for me, that was a lot. It looked like right. if you can, and like a shark came up and kind of bit me, um, which my husband actually was the first one who said that in a <laughs> condescending way. Um, and I cried when he said that. Yeah, but, that's not nice. But, but it, well, he was not nice. Um, so I did, you know, have this kind of um, big chunk missing out of my breast. And I, you know, because I was going to have chemo and radiation next, um, they wanted to wait at least a year uh, for reconstruction to let everything heal. So um, I kind of, you know, trying to figure out what to do with it. Like I wore like a, you know, one of those, um, those gel kind of um, what we used to call like Like the chicken cutlets, chicken cutlet. (laughs) I don't remember like, what was that? Yeah, so it was just shaped exactly like the piece they had taken out, the chicken cutlet. But it was so uncomfortable. It was, like, stuck to me, and it was just, like, you know, right where they had taken so much out, it was, like, my my chest wall was hurting. And, you know, it just I, – I had to switch to non-underwire bras, and, yeah. you know, it was just so uncomfortable. I just – you know, I was trying to fill it with cotton. I was trying to fill it with – you know, I don't know. Oh, wow. It, it was very – I was trying to find the right – thing to just you know fill my bra up at, at the time and nothing felt good so I was really happy when the reconstruction time came around yeah so you did the chemo and then yeah. you did the radiation and then did you yeah. do, you did the reconstruction like a year later yep in um, okay. February of 2007 and I, I did uh you know the standard ACT um, lost my hair and pretty much everything else. Um, eyebrows, eyelashes. Um, yeah, my, my leg hair disappeared and it was just like everything. It was very strange. Um, as most people experience. And I decided, um, I did not want to have hair like falling out in chunks or, you know, waking up and having hair clean up on my pillow. So I actually had a, a shave night party, um, at my house and my brother helped me shave my hair and I did and we shaved it into a mohawk first my um I had been working twin brother yeah Yeah. hey Ross um so I was working part-time as a nail tech and the owner of the salon came and you know she was the one that did the mohawk for me and I have a picture on Facebook (laughs) of it and it was really really cool because it was like I had cut my hair not that much long before I was diagnosed and like shoulder length. So it was like pretty tall. It was. Back. I've seen Why it. Did I do it's this great. <laughs> I was like, I, I've done this a long time ago. Like Absolutely. I, I was that, I was that person who I used to have really long hair and I, I would, I would go into the, the salon and I'd be like quarter of an inch at the most <laughs> trim it off. That's it. Like don't do it. anything else. I love it. So, From that to Mohawk. Mean, oh yeah. And yeah. then we just stuck saving it and it was just like all right but even when it started the little stubble started falling out it really it did hurt you know I was washing it with a washcloth and I thought it would come right out but 
it took a little bit for the you know follicles to release those the little stubs and Interesting. you know it was really good but finally when it was all out it was it felt a lot better i'm sure i'm sure so i want to go back and kind of revisit something that we talked about a little bit earlier so did yeah. you get tested for the genetic mutation i did and, and were you ne- positive no 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 uh, and since I have I have gotten um, a succession of genetic testing through Dana Farber, the second BRCA test, um, and I had a thirty panel test done um, probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, um, that included colon cancer and other types of cancers, p fifty one, you know, all that different types of genetic. Um, mutations and everything came back negative and you know the, the genetic counselor was really she started to get frustrated because she's like obviously your fa- you know your family is carrying some mutation well yeah um, I mean there's something that's there that they just haven't found, found yet yeah, yeah yeah there's you know and I think that's the the probably the the biggest frustration is you know mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense that there would be a long line of family members that would have cancer and mm-hmm. everybody continuing to come back negative um, in terms of the genetic testing. Like there's, there obviously is something missing. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, you, you shared a little bit about your ex-husband now who clearly was not a good person to support you from what it sounds like. Um, not at all. So where did you find your support then? I mean, kind of going through this, you know, you, you really do have to have a solid support system around you. So, you know, because he could not be that person for you, where did you find your support? Well, it's funny, like people that I wouldn't have ever thought would support me came out of the woodwork. So, I mean, yes, I had my twin brother, you know, my mom, um, I had, um, my, my cousin who took me to Marianne that took me to chemo one time. But even like, I, I just found like my neighbors were more helpful. Like I lived up the street from this woman named Lynn and she was just amazing. She would come down and, you know, she'd bring me lunch and she'd take me for a ride, you know, make sure I got a little fresh air. I, you know, I was really sick during chemo. Um, and aside is that in 2003, I had been diagnosed with lupus. So, like, the, the chemo really hit me hard. Right. Um, I had bone and joint pain um, and muscle pain anyway. So, you know, along with the chemo and Nulasta, like, I was just a wreck. And I was throwing up a lot. And, you know, so, you know, she'd come and I'd be hanging my head out the window like, you know, like a dog. And uh, it was wintertime and it was cold and I'd get hot flashes and... Um, and I had also at the same time I started chemo, I started a clinical trial. So, I mean, all of it together was just a lot. Um, but you know, even, uh, my ex-husband's parents were more supportive than he was. Wow. Uh, my sister-in-law at the time, Kelly, who was my best friend from high school. Um, and you know, a lot of his family members were just, you know, a lot more and just people from the museum were amazing. They were sending me cards and flowers and you know, calling me and, you know, you know, if you ever want to talk. And so it just, it was just amazing how, even though you don't have support from the one that you thought was going to be your bigger supporter, um, it just kind of formed on its own. Yeah. Well, and I, I agree with that. Like I feel like there are 
we have these kind of expectations, right? I mean, I would say definitely a husband <laughs> should be one of those people who are supportive. Um, it's kind of, you know, part of the vows. But, you know, we have expectations that certain people are going to show up. And then we don't even think about some of these other people. And they really do just show up out of nowhere and sometimes are the biggest supporters and cheerleaders. So I can totally, you know, resonate exactly with what you're saying about, you know, people just kind of coming out of the woodwork. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm sad that the, you know, that your, your husband at the time could not be supportive, but I'm glad that you had other people that could step up to the plate and help you through that because it's not easy for sure. No. And I knew the first night, the, the night I was diagnosed that it was going to be horrific going through this with him because we got to back to my house. His family came over. My family came over. He proceeded to drink like a huge amount of Jack Daniels and was just falling all over the street outside. And I went to bed alone and crying with no Ativan by, by the way, like the doctor didn't even <laughs> offer me some Ativan. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was just looking at him and I'm like, I, I'm going to be alone during this, you know, I'm, there's going to be a lot of aloneness and there is anyway, even if the, you have the most, you know, tight support system, you know, you're the one that's going through it and you just, you, you are going to feel alone at a lot of times. Absolutely. Um, like nobody can walk the journey for you. They can be right. there. They can hold your hand. They can lift you up. They can pick you up. They can push you forward. But mm -hmm. at no point in time can they walk it for you. So, you know, I, I want to end this um, on a on a good note, on a positive note, because there is somebody <laughs> in your life now who, you know, came into your life and and loves you for you. So, um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about your, your new husband. And um, <laughs> you have also a little, you have somebody else in your life. <laughs> I do. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about them. Okay, so here's the progression went um, as I um, got divorced in 2007. Um, I had kind of a little bit later that year been um, switched over to tamoxifen because I wasn't handling the clinical trial very well. I got my, I got my period back. Um, I met my now husband, Craig, online. He was actually living up here in Portsmouth. He's from Massachusetts, but... He had been up here for a long time. Um, we got married in 2014, and we decided that we were going to just try but not try to have yeah. a baby. And um, I got off the tamoxifen in May, took out the birth control in July, and surprisingly in January of 2015, I was pregnant. <laughs> um, I now have a beautiful, amazing four-year-old son named Alex yeah. uh, and he's the light of my life and you know he's the reason really that I you know get up and push myself every day um, I, I just recently had some scans done this summer um, because I was get, having back pain and bone pain and you know I, of course you know it all the recur the fear of recurrence comes back sure. and and I had to face like oh my gosh like what's gonna happen to Alex like you know I don't want this to happen. And, you know, that fear comes back, but, you know, luckily I was clean and clear and, um, and I'm, I'm just like so amazed that, you know, I, I, that he's here and I just look at him every day and he's just my little miracle. And, 
And to not have to go through the fertility that so many women do, even not having cancer, I just, I feel like that extra, like, blessed feeling, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I know that you, that word's overused, like, <laughs> blessed, but. Um, it's okay. I, if it's your I word, it's your I, word. <laughs> I was shocked. I just, I ran upstairs and I woke up Craig and I was like, you got one past the goal. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, what, what, what? And, you know, and we were, we were a little cautious. It was a high risk pregnancy, but sure. like everything went really smoothly and he's just, he's great. And I was worried in a little way because, you know, of all the, the drugs that I had taken, yeah. you know, they say like when you do chemo and all the other drugs, it's like, Hey, I've done more drugs than Keith Richards. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no joke. Um, so I wasn't, you know, I had like tests done, you know, when he was in utero and I was like nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, is he going to have three eyes? Is he going to, you know. Right. But I mean, knock, I'm knocking on wood. Like he's seriously like, he's like perfect. I just mm-hmm. like couldn't ask for like, I mean, I, all I wanted was 10 toes, 10 fingers, you know, and he's just like. And a head. I think the head is. He's got the head. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have three <laughs> eyes. Yeah, no, so he far. is so adorable. Thank um, you. Yeah, and you know, I again, I I really wanted to kind of end this on a, a positive note because you know I know yeah. that you know things have changed for you over the course of time, and um, that you do have these two men in your life who are just amazing and supportive, and um, you know, a much better experience. Um, you know, again, I'm sad that you had the initial experience with an unsupportive partner. Um, but I'm grateful that you are where you are now. So am I. Um, I, you know, I just had three reconstructive surgeries this year alone, uh, one oh. last year before. So it took Craig a little time to kind of get into the groove of like cancer life because he, he hadn't really known what it was like to go through the first round of that whole, you know, previous life of, you know, initial diagnosis and treatment. And, um, I think he really gets it now. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny how they just kind of adjust. They figure it out. They do, but he's definitely, you know, stepped up in a huge way. And I thank him very much. And, you know, everyone that supported me as well as you. And, um, even this October, I had kind of changed things around and I've been, um, kind of advocating a lot more for Metaviver. Yeah. Because I really am strongly, um, you know, for not just awareness, but making breast cancer a chronic illness instead of a death, you know. Yes. You know. We need more research dollars to go to stage four. I have stage four research. So it's just not, you know, like you get diagnosed and you're like, okay. Um, You know, I think we definitely need a lot more research and and moving the awareness to, you know, to stage four. I think that, you know, doctors really should talk about it more with their patients beforehand. Absolutely. Because <laughs> even though it's, it's so, it's, it's scary stuff to think that way, but we really need to, you know, know that this could happen and, and be prepared because the more we know, you know, just like that eighties commercial with the star. Kind of goes, I know. Now. I love that. The more, you know, <laughs> and a hundred percent of all donations to Metaviver go to research. So yes. Um, well, Metaviver has been on the podcast. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, that was a great episode and very informative. Um, and yeah, 
Uh, They're doing great work. So yeah, yeah, it's pretty exciting. But um, so our time has definitely come to an end. I'm so sad because I feel like, you know, we could definitely sit here and talk for forever about so many different things. Um, You know, it's, you know, when you have 14, 15 years behind you, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know, there's, there are so many stories. (laughs) There are. That. Yeah. Every, every story is different. And, That's it. you know, more time that goes by, you have more experience with, you know, helping other people, you know, that right. are diagnosed. And yeah, well, you know, I can talk a whole sort of a canoe, <laughs> you know. I'm a half Italian, half Jewish. What can I say? <laughs> You're too much. Well, I want to thank you so much for being willing to come onto the podcast, sharing your story, um, and just, you know, again, thank you so much for being one of my number one cheerleaders. I know that you'll always listen to the podcast, so that means a lot to me um, and the work that I'm I'm doing. It's an excellent podcast, and I'm, you know, going to market the shit out of it. Can I say <laughs> shit on a podcast? <laughs> I mean, you did uh- twice. <laughs> Oh, so. see, I say it so much, like you know. Well, I, I think I think that one's good. I think it's swear word. Yeah, I think there are other words that we just want to make sure we don't have. So yeah, I understand that one, um, but awesome. but it's been a, it's been a pleasure and an honor. And anytime um, you want to have another chat, I'm available. So absolutely, sounds good. To all your listeners out there, keep on fighting every day and keep on kicking ass. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.